0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 26th, 2022. Uh, the more I do this show, the more I conclude I that. Understand America is through its dysfunctional healthcare system, and perhaps it's dysfunctional if that's the right word uh, healthcare workers of one kind or another. We've done a number of shows on the crisis of American medicine, it's a very complicated, multifaceted crisis. One of the people I think who best understands it and best able to articulate it is Robert Pearl, he's the author of Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. It's a book about the general misery of the system. He was on the show earlier this year talking about the parallel pandemics in America of COVID, anxiety, and gun violence. One could add the pandemic of the actual medical system itself. Um, Certainly, the medical system in America reflects the profound inequalities of this country. We've done a couple of shows on that recently. One with Stephen Thrasher, who has a new book out, The Viral Underclass. And another uh, this week with the uh, writer Linda Villarosa on racism and and the American medical system under the skin. The hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the health of our nation. Um, All these writers are non-fictional. Uh, my guest today on the show, however, is a fiction writer and also a doctor. Anna de Forest is a young or relatively young um, doctor and she has a new novel, her first book, A History of Present Illness, out. It's been acclaimed. It's a, a wonderfully poetic and poignant book on her experience, I think, as a doctor and uh, a reflection of the American medical system itself. Uh, Anna is joining us from Manhattan. She's just over the street from, she tells me, a hospital. It looks like a rather medical environment. Anna, welcome. Um, that I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction. Do you think that's fair, that if we can get to the heart of the complexities, the paradoxes, the injustices of the American medical system, we can also get to the heart of what else is wrong with this country.
1: Uh, That may well be the case. I'm not sure I'm the best person to report on it. I know that the the mystery of what's wrong with the hospital has been something that's gripped me pretty intensely for the past decade while I've been in training. Um, The hospital is a place that's full of really extraordinary individuals, as you know, doing really good and important work, yet simultaneously it's such a, a, a toxic environment for so many people. Um, so disempowering, dehumanizing a, a function of systemic racism in our country. Um, it's it's a tough question to answer. Why is this happening and, and what can we do about it?
0: Yeah, and of course, it, the medical system and doctors like yourself are as much victims of this as perpetrators. It's all very complicated. Uh, your book is a novel, uh, A History of Present Illness. The New York Times loved the book but they suggested at times they would have preferred it, I think, or they implied that they might have preferred that it was nonfiction. Did you grapple with writing fiction versus nonfiction? Because it's a pretty hard-hitting book about the medical system.
1: Well, I I didn't grapple with that, I think, in part because I was a fiction writer before I was a doctor. Um, Fiction is my means of seeing the world. But when I read Ellen Berry's review, uh, which was phenomenal, I was interested so much to see her say that she felt the book expressed a bit of a conflict between, I think she said, the goals of imaginative fiction um, versus bearing witness, as if those two things were opposed in any way. Um, for me to, you know, to try to write a book that deals so much with the interface between the the personal and the professional, the public and the private, one of the safest and most effective ways to do that, to really paint that picture was to use fiction because it has so so much less constraint than non-fiction
0: she also in the review talked about uh your book being about power uh she quotes you about how the surgeons mock the patients they put under mock their students for sweating uh that power uh economic power cultural power uh defines the system. Is that a fair observation? Is that one of the things you were trying to write about in the book, A History of Present Illness, the imbalance of power between doctors and patients?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think anyone who's ever been a patient in a hospital has felt this, you could take a CEO and put her in the hospital, and she'd feel it right away that she is not in charge. If you then add to that patient, that body, more marginalized identities, take someone who's not rich, who's not white, who's not straight, who's not stably housed. I've had myself so many experiences in in a cohort of medical professionals caring for patients who say have complications from substance use disorder. And it's still, you know, common to see doctors react to patients who are struggling with addiction on a spectrum of disgust to annoyance, it's acceptable for doctors to express this among themselves, Um, maybe not to your patient's face now, fortunately. And this is a question about power, because even compassion in those instances and its more common expressions, it's compassionate to say, oh, it's so sad that some people choose to live this way. And the notion that living with addiction is a choice. I mean, this is where you have to examine power because as I've found, the further along you go, the more power you get, the more privilege, the easier it is to feel that you have the things that you have because you chose them, because you deserve them or that you earned them. And I mean, this is just not something that is necessarily true. People don't suffer because they choose to suffer
0: yeah it's bad luck a... and it gets to the you know we've had so many shows so many books so many conversations about justice and injustice in america and whether we can somehow vindicate success certainly when it comes to power we've had a number of shows about the way to fix the medical system is by empowering um the patients. some people think like a German writer we had on the show recently, Harold Schmidt, that we can do it through technology. The end of medicine, as we know it, suggests that um, with new digital technology, patients will be empowered. Did a show with uh, another Israeli doctor, Talia Miron Schatz, on uh, teaching people how to make better choices about their health care. Is the way, at least, to try to address the imbalance of power, Anna? by empowering patients? Or is that just happy business school talk?
1: Um, I I suspect it it comes from a good place. But I think the people who are empowered by advice like that, people who are reading those books are probably significantly empowered in the first place. Um, The patients who are most easily able to advocate for themselves in a hospital setting already are the people who are Highly educated or from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, white people specifically. Um, if we take people who already feel somewhat empowered and give them books on becoming more empowered, that's great for them. But I think we have a problem on a level of systems that you can't intervene with a, a nonfiction book that you hand to your patient and say, you know, advocate for yourself.
0: You mentioned that you began as a fiction writer rather than a doctor, and and now you're a neurologist and a a palliative care physician in New York City. Um, Tell me a little bit about your life, about the life that generated as a doctor um, this book.
1: Well, um, you know, I I think from from a young age, I distinguished myself as a person, a child even who was just deeply self-serious like prohibitively self-serious and I I saw a lot of life as as a problem a mystery that needed to be cracked and at the at the same time I was afraid of a lot of things I was afraid of, of the, the rapture many kinds of apocalypse I was afraid of asteroids and aliens and serial killers and tornadoes I was this really like strange and, and neurotic little kid And and living like that, I think, like living in proximity to so many kinds of anxiety, though it just sounds like, as I'm hearing myself say it, kind of like a psychiatric illness, it manifested in me uh, a bit of a a power, a power to um, sit with uncertainty, to face up to terror, because I never had much of an option either way. And in in that way, you know, when you're afraid, and I think most fear is fear of death, being really afraid of dying also enmeshes you in this mystery of what does it mean to be alive? Uh, how do we handle the, the essential mystery of that? And so being like that, being like that in 18 years old, you know, <laughs> what would you do? I went to college, I went to a liberal arts college where I thought I would solve the question. And um, so credulous, the, the first course I ever took, I went to the new school liberal arts college, it's called Eugene Lang. Um, and the first course I ever took was called The Story of the Devil. And it was a literature course where we read like Urt Faust and and we watched The Exorcist. And I spent the first week in class sitting earnestly around the table. And the professor had asked us to answer the question, what is evil? And so the students, these kids, were kind of like shooting the shit, basically, of this question, what is evil? And then the, the week ended and we moved on, we started reading a book. And I kind of like raised my hand on that second Monday and I said, "But we haven't answered the question yet. And everyone laughed at me, but I really thought that I would come to school and people would tell me the answers to the great questions, one of which I think is like, what is evil? And I went from there to like getting a really hodgepodge and kind of fascinatingly patchy liberal arts education. Um, I took a class, I remember on, on Rene Descartes, and I, I learned about cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and it never had really like occurred to me to ask, oh, what is the, the foundational modicum of my reality? And so I I read meditations on first philosophy, and I said, oh, it's thought, and it, as soon as I understood it, I sort of believed it, which is such a good lesson, I think, in in, in credulity, because we do tend to believe anything that we understand, um, which is kind of dangerous, right? It, it biases us towards things that are simple when most complicated questions are not simple. Um, so I went from there to getting really interested in phenomenology and then I went from there to graduating with a degree in liberal arts in 2008. Um, I didn't know that you really should think about jobs when you go to college. I kind of like grew up in this in this complicated privileged in that, you know, my parents always said, go to college, but, but, um, disadvantaged because I didn't really know what college was for. I was, so I ended up in graduate school quite young. I got an MFA in, in fiction writing and I was still doing this now in, in fiction, trying to figure out like, like, how do we live? And, and it was teaching and it was very interesting, but I, I hit a point in my mid twenties where I like, think I really needed to get a job, like a job that, that paid a living wage. And, um, I always feel a little gauche when I'm talking about creative processes and then I start talking about work and and income but you know the fact is that a lot of people myself included for my whole life have to have to work to live and um and I wanted meaningful work and and through kind of a convoluted process of self-exploration and my aforementioned horrible fear of dying I I ended up um volunteering in a hospital and and then I and I, I did a post back, and I went to medical school and took that weird head that was trying to to solve the question and and put it in a very different circumstance. Um, yeah.
0: Anna, uh, you, you talked about reading Descartes and sort of being introduced to the Cartesian logic of uh, proof of existence being in the self, perhaps in the body. I know you have a an interest in the body, uh, as all doctors, of course, do. We did a show with Jonathan Reisman last year. He has a fascinating new book out, The Unseen Body, a doctor's journey through the hidden wonders of human anatomy. Do you think your interest in certainty or your your appetite, your desire for certainty uh, was realized in in the body? Is that the thing that attracts you, makes you? the doctor that you are, this fascination with the physical, with this thing that we call the body?
1: Well, to be clear, I'm not a, a big fan of Descartes. And I, I think the, the notion that mind and body are really separate is silly. It's really silly. It, it doesn't make sense practically to any of us walking around, um, unless we we teach ourselves this, that we are our thoughts and not our, our meat and bones. Um, so it's really the, the contrast there I think that catches my interest in maybe um, let's let's take a step back. I'm a I'm a palliative care physician. What palliative care physicians do um, is to really focus on the experience that a person is having of their illness in their body, in their mind, in their social world. And we we parse these things out in so much as we treat them differently. But when it comes to the situation of a suffering person, it's not a suffering mind separate from a suffering body. These the, the boundaries here are so liminal. And I think maybe that's the difference that a lot of palliative care physicians bring to their work separate from their colleagues in other fields.
0: But it's a very interesting uh, observation you make about this distinction between the body and the mind. Do you think that uh, any doctor could be a Cartesian, could be a fan of... of um, could be a fan of uh of Descartes or do you think that any experience with palliative care with seeing people very sick and dying will that lead one away from that assumption of the body as an essential truth
1: I I think there's a kind of need in in anyone's mind and certainly a busy physician's mind for things to be simple enough to address with the tools that we have now in, in this training, what are the tools that we have? I, I ask myself often as a kind of a meditation bell, <laughs> what is the purpose of this job, a physician? The purpose of a physician is to maintain in the patient that the health of the, of the body, restore health to the body. Um, what, it, what is health? so the who defines health not as the absence of disease but as this is i'm going to try to quote it the the complete physical emotional and social well-being of a person of a a person Um, and so we we treat diseases though it's a biochemical process that social and psychological forces sit on top of it in nebulous way but if you look at something like the leading causes of death in the US, you see illnesses like heart disease and COPD and diabetes diseases that are as much contributed to by social and environmental and socially determined factors as they are by biochemistry. But doctors aren't trained in that. That's not our job. We're not given the skills to change the world. So if the problem is too complex to address with the tools that you have, you have to change your notion of the scope of the problem. And I think that's what makes physicians a little bit more Cartesian that I might prefer because you have to simple things up quite a bit to address them in the time that you're given with the tools that you have.
0: Yeah. You wrote a, a lovely piece, uh, yeah, in uh, LitHub uh, on whether life is, is worth living and, one of the takeaways you argue is that doctors care poorly for patients who are on the way out and they wait too long to talk with the dying about death. It must be very hard to talk about death. How do you do that?
1: Perhaps before I go there, I, I do want to say that I, I found that subtitle a bit provocative on the LitHub piece. I'm certainly not. Okay, going well, to we'll, do. we'll
0: smack the. Um, <laughs> Well, smack the lit. Uh, uh, this show kind of goes out on Lit Hub, although it's not <laughs> formally a Lit Hub show. So uh, whoever is responsible for that, uh, please note that the you, you thought that it was an inappropriate subtitle.
1: Well, no, I would just amend it to say that the, the calculus is not done by the physician. In any situation in which physicians feel that they're determining whether or not someone else's life is worth living, they've made a rather large moral misstep. Right.
0: Um, and just to be clear for people who aren't watching or just listening, the subtitle on uh, Anna DeForest's piece on Lit Hub recently from August the 16th was uh, whether she was wrestling. I'm not sure if that's the right word with the calculus of whether a life is worth living. But you weren't really wrestling with that. It, obviously, Anna, you, it is worth living if you can save it, presumably. Well, anyway, so to, to back to the question of talking about death, which is also a tricky one.
1: It, it can be, you know, it, it really can be. We've been having a lot of discussions in the field of palliative care lately about something called advanced care planning, which is a big part of what palliative care is supposed to bring to, to medical settings, their ability and the skills to perform advanced care planning, which means talking to people when they're relatively healthy or perhaps newly diagnosed with a disease that might come to threaten their lives, talk with them about what they might want in certain conditions or others. and that's difficult to do um healthy people don't really want to talk about the, the conditions of their dying and then people who are sick who are moving toward these kinds of conditions perhaps are even more apprehensive but the trouble with advanced care planning is not that it makes people uncomfortable it's that people who are healthy have a hard time imagining how they will feel when they are ill when they are facing these kinds of decisions later in their life how would they want to make them you actually can't predict it you're not the person who will be doing that math it'll be a different version of you, a version of you who's been living in a different set of conditions with a different set of stakes. So the difficulty isn't just discomfort. Um, I think you have to be a little bit interested in discomfort, both to be a good fiction writer and to be a physician of any kind, but certainly in palliative care. I think the difficulty of talking about death is how how unimaginable some of the conditions around death can can come to be.
0: And I assume that one of the difficulties of all this is back to your concern and issue of power is because of the power imbalances, that conversation about death and dying becomes very hard and very problematic.
1: It's certainly problematic. It's certainly hard. I think the way that power may play into it is that I mean, physicians determine when these conversations even occur. Uh, There are a lot of physicians who don't wish to talk to patients about dying until they feel the patient has no choice but to die. Uh, That death is what will occur. And all we get to do really is, um, the terrible metaphor you often hear in an ICU is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, Mm. The power to decide when the conversation happens might be one of the most overlooked powers that physicians hold.
0: It's one of the problems, Anna, that um, medicine, and particularly American medicine, is based so much on science, on certainty, on proof and research. And death is so profoundly about uncertainty. We have no idea of it, really. I mean, we know, I guess there are certain scientific truths, but we don't know what happens after death. We have no idea. Uh, perhaps we never will. Um, e- To deal with this complicated, enormously painful and problematic issue of confronting death, do doctors have to unload themselves of science? Can science help with this?
1: Oh, that's such an interesting framing of the question. I, as a person who's always been very interested in death, in in that, just as you posited it, it's definitive in all of our lives that will die. Nobody knows what happens when we do it in in many ways and under many schools of thought, conditions the entire way that we live. It is the great mystery. And doctors live and work in such proximity to it. Going into medical school with a bit of a poetic sensibility, I actually thought that we would talk about this amongst ourselves all the time. Like, what is death? What happens next? Well, we, we, we don't. Uh, we don't. And that's it's it's odd. I I think it has to do with what, with what we were saying before. What 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 can we say with certainty? Because you're right. Like medicine can take you right up to the edge of death, and it can hold you there for a really long time, um, but it, it can't say what happens after that, uh, and it can't bring you back to health in many instances. Um, I, I this makes me think again about why you might write a novel about medicine instead of a instead of a um, an indictment is that this is just, it's just so rich and strange. Like imagine a collective of people who have chosen to work in this space, but then they, they turn it into, into a series of tasks that are comprehensible and routinized. They have tools. It's, it's so bizarre.
0: Anna, over, over the history of our species, we address this uncertainty in part, or try to confront it with religion, thoughts about God. I had a, I've had a couple of uh, influential physicists, not physicians, but physicists on the show, sort of experts on physics and the universe. I have always ask them whether or not experts in physics are more or less likely to believe in God. What about on the, the, the medicine front? You said you don't talk much about death to your colleagues. Do doctors talk about religion? Do you think that being a doctor and dealing with this ever-present issue of death uh, and the reality of death—is it make you more or less likely to be religious?
1: I bet there's data on that, and I don't know the data. It would be interesting to look at.
0: I don't and, know if there's data. We're falling back now on scientific certainties, and <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. Oh, well, whether... No, no,
1: no. I, I had a follow-up. I was going to get weird. I was going to say, "Okay, to doctors, get, get doctors, weird doctors for would say go to the data." I won't. Um, I don't know it, but it, in in palliative care. We always work in in teams, we call it the interdisciplinary team, because we have this holistic approach to what it means to care for someone who is ill. And our teams always include uh, chaplains who are specialists in spiritual care. Um, So I spend a lot of time in in my work teams working with my chaplains and speaking with them directly because um, I have a lot of conversations about doctors with doctors about religion, um, because I have a lot of, I'll admit, religious baggage and you read the book, there's a lot of religious baggage in the book, I grew That's up rather
0: unkind to call it baggage, I mean, well, isn't it's it? mine,
1: so I can call it what I want.
0: Well, it's so And what I mean is, is you're unkind to yourself that you're, it's a form of self criticism that you think you can discard that baggage somehow. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think I can discard it. I've certainly tried. I I grew up adjacent to a kind of um, Christian fundamentalism that I always perceived as quite harmful, and it was quite harmful. But at the same time, having a a religious environment in which my thoughts were shaped when I left that tradition, I still, as I've been saying throughout this conversation, have a lot of concerns that fall under the domain of religious questions. And I love to talk to religious people about the way they think these things through, um, because they have principles that apply to these instances that a scientist doesn't necessarily have about what is the value of life, about um, how do we make these kinds of difficult decisions. But I think essentially, if you overvalue certainty, that that can also be perfectly compatible with intense faith if, if faith is a certainty for you. Um, I've, I've met all sorts, I can tell you that.
0: Is your book a, a spiritual book? Uh, we had uh, Jean Hampf Coralitz on the show earlier this week. She's the author of the best selling book, The Late Comer. She told me that politics for her as a writer doesn't really matter that much. Her priority is to tell a good story with compelling characters. What was your priority as a novelist in a history of present illness? What were you really focusing on? What did you want to achieve with this book? What gives you pride? <laughs>
1: well i'm I'm grappling with the question uh, it, the question is how do we live in the face of death and and what is our responsibility when we are faced with suffering the suffering of ourselves and the suffering of others the book doesn't answer those questions but it certainly elaborates them uh and to that extent i'm i'm quite proud of it
0: let's end with covid uh, you've lived through it. We've all lived through it. Fortunately, we're all still living. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with Eli Saslow, book about voices for th- from the pandemic. You wrote a 2010 piece in uh, the Paris Review uh, about your experience. And I'm quoting, I spent the first surge worried I would kill my husband. Um, I am a doctor and he has bad lungs. Uh, what was your experience in COVID? And, and how did that change you as a as a doctor? How did that make you think or rethink death?
1: Well, I, I've had a chance to write about it. I wrote, I wrote that piece in 2020. I wrote at, in the New England Journal about watching patients die of COVID as well. Um, if I hadn't written about it, I'm not sure I would even have access to the way that it felt back then lots of people who experience large-scale trauma will tell you that the same thing that they don't remember uh what it was like because before we were vaccinated um so many situations we were we were in the the doctors the nurses the nurses the respiratory therapists um we we were so afraid it was so frightening and once the fear was gone and it, that it was, it was just grief and it was confusion and it was it, 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 it's it, it, it's trauma we're going to be we will be reckoning with the trauma of the pandemic as it goes on and has it has affected healthcare workers and healthcare workers fleeing healthcare, uh, we're going to be reckoning with this for for a long time.
0: You wrote that uh in that piece i used to love being in the hospital now i hate this place did it turn you off being a doctor the COVID experience
1: there were moments there were moments
0: but are you back on board are you
1: back (laughs) Back on board i i I think an extraordinary thing about being a human being is that you can be in these situations where you can say i can't stand this i can't take another moment of this and then you do (laughs) And, and you bounce back, but you're not the same, and not everyone bounces back. I mean, resilience is basically a swear word, as far as I'm concerned, to expect this of a, of a, a workforce. I was a resident during the pandemic. And people who have are basically undercompensated for incredible labor, working 80 hours a week, doing just insane things in the name of their education with no time to reflect on them, no means to really care for themselves. I mean, if you want to ask the question of how doctors become callous before the pandemic, it's because of the way we're trained. So those of us who trained during the pandemic, uh, we will have a, a different perspective. Hopefully it will lead to some positive change, uh, but we're also really tired.
0: Let's end on a positive note, as you say, it could lead to positive change. You, you wrote in that Paris Review piece, doctoring, is men's work, although we work to change this. Is that really, when it comes to power, is it to make it not just men's work? If, if we're to improve the profession, improve the experience of going to hospitals, improve indeed the experience of dying, do we need to make doctoring less like men's work?
1: We certainly need to make it more diverse, diverse in, in viewpoint as much as gender. Uh, diverse in in race, socioeconomically diverse, diverse in gender expression and in sexual preference. We have a young generation of up-and-coming doctors, trainee doctors who are incredibly diverse. Uh, And there's hope that this means that things will change. But if you want to hinge specifically on the question of of gender, um, women have been showing up to medical school in similar numbers to men. 40% of medical students were women 30 years ago. Now it's more than 50%. But if you look at deans and department chairs in medicine, do you think that 40 percent of them are women? I think I think something like 15 percent of them are women 30 years later. So uh, the, the system defends itself. It, it does.
0: Well, you you are in some ways, I think, a critic of the system. I mean, it's not as you suggested, it's not a polemic, but it's a book that's quite troubling and unsettling a history of present illness it's your first book Anna. i hope it's not your last many more books on this subject congratulations on first novel huge achievement Uh, what else are you reading these days i hope you have some time for reading in addition to uh, your own writing and the business of course of being a palliative care physician
1: well I, i read when i can Um, You've given some great recommendations today. Some of this medical nonfiction might be empowering, as you put it, about uh, being a little more solutions-oriented instead of just pictorial, but uh, mostly I just read um, fiction, (laughs) literary fiction. I've been reading Miranda Popke's Topics of Conversation, which came out a few years ago, but it's just phenomenal. And I'm wild about all of the the newer um, Rachel Cusk novels. Just anyone who will speak in plain and beautiful sentences about what matters most in the world,